You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Crystal. And I'm Nancy. And we are the co-hosts of this show. This week, we are at the Extreme History headquarters speaking via Zoom with Dr. Kathleen Brown about her research on early America. Dr. Brown's research focuses on 17th and 18th century and the ways in which historical constructions of gender and race, of cleanliness, and of the human body were foundational to the institutions of slavery and of human rights. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Is And is it okay if I call you Kathy? Yes, please okay. do. And thank you so much for having me here. Oh, we're so, we're so glad that you could take the time. And um, before we begin talking, uh, Kathy, and I was noting everyone else was calling you Kathleen, but since I've known you since I was able to remember you, probably from about age three, I have to tell everyone that you are my first cousin and <laughs> that my father and your mother are siblings. So um, full disclosure, we felt like we were super excited to get somebody as distinguished as you onto our podcast. So thanks so much. And it's so good to see you. And it's so good to dive into your work. Um, so I'm bragging a bit about you here because your CV is so impressive. And I want to give our listeners some background on your professional career. So I'm going to do that. And then we'll move on to questions. So Kathleen Brown is the David Boys Professor of American History at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's been teaching since 1996. She received the John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship in 2015, as well as the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship for University Teachers in 2001, and has spent several years on the Organization of American Historians Distinguished Speakers List. She's also long affiliated with both the Alice Paul Center for Research on Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and the program on Africana Studies. Kathy is the author of Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs, amazing title, (laughs) Gender, Race, and Power in Colonial Virginia. That book won the Dunning Prize for the American Historical Association. Her second book, Foul Bodies, Cleanliness in Early America, received the Organization of American Historians Lawrence Levine Book Prize for Cultural History, as well as the Book Prize from the Society of the History of Early American Republic. She is also the author of numerous articles and essays, and her current project, which is a forthcoming book, is Undoing Slavery, Abolitionist Body Politics and the Argument Over Humanity. So, Kathy, I know that I've left some stuff out, but um, we can't go through your whole CV here, unfortunately. <laughs> it takes some Very time, yes. right? <laughs> so, um, but we do want to talk about each of your books today, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, as well as Foul Bodies, and your forthcoming book, Undoing Slavery. 
but we want to begin by asking two interrelated questions that are about your approach to history, to doing history, to engaging with it, to research and explanation. Um, I've watched and read some of your discussions on how historians can move away from sort of what I think of as the great man histories, these master narratives that, um, that really just focus on events one after another chronologically, and essentially reconceptualize the dynamics of historical change. That is, how it is we understand and explain change in the past. What is the driver of that change? And I relate to that very much from my research and, and um, academic career in archaeology, because we ask those same questions. We do it over more massive time periods with very different types of data. And often we argue about how often archaeologists lean on the environment. Changes in the environment drove changes in the society that we can see. And often it's a very unsatisfactory kind of feeling and explanation because there isn't a lot about the people and their agency and their decision making in there. So there's a lot of movement away from that too. So you note that it is harder to imagine historical change as emanating from numerous dispersed sites, maybe private domestic spaces, rather than more public forums and institutions, and that these smaller places might have the capacity to coalesce and converge and ultimately drive major historical change. Um, you've given an example often about instead of thinking of as one event having sort of this um, impact and then emanating out um, in sort of uh, ripples like a large boulder thrown in water, instead that there could be many pebbles um, in a pond that all have concentric ripples that all then overlap and converge, and, and that creates a very different dynamic explanation. So you stress that we need new kinds of models for analyzing historical change and strive for this approach, uh, I think, in all your books. Okay, so here actually come the questions. What, from your perspective, does it mean to be a gender historian within the larger field of early America and the Atlantic world? And what would you say to people who might resist or be resistant to the notion that incorporating historical ideas about gender, um, which are perhaps essential and provide more accurate understandings of the past, about our early colonies, changes that led to the American Revolution, slavery, and all of that? So thank you, thank you, Nancy, for um, the kind words, but also for um, the very challenging and spot on questions. Um, so I guess what I'd say is that in my experience, there are a lot of people who are willing to admit that the way we've um, set expectations or held ideals for women's behavior, women's appearance, women's family roles, and similarly for men's, um, uh, you know, expectations for them to be breadwinners or for them to be brave or for them to be physically strong, that those, they're willing to admit that those things might have changed over time, that what we know as gender has been subject to historical change as opposed to being absolutely an unchanging natural entity. Um, but where they're not so sure about gender is that it really has a place in our analysis of historical change. So in other words, they can see that, oh yeah, 
um, you know, women do more purchasing now. And in the past, they did more um, home manufacture of food and clothing and um, that that's a change over time. But what they have a little more trouble imagining or incorporating into historical storytelling what historians would refer to as historical narrative is how any of those change actually at changes cause other changes. In other words, that they're, they see them as consequences most often of, you know, changes to the economy um, rather than as um, being historical change makers um, in their own right. And so I feel like that's, that's, a still something that um, gender historians, but really people who work on gender and sexuality in a lot of different fields still grapple with, um, that there's a kind of a grudging acceptance of, um, you know, that there may be a story to tell, but not as much conviction that it's an important story. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I guess my comeback to that would be to, you know, think about some of the major transformations in early America, we could say, you know, all over the Americas, but then we could even narrow it down and say early North America, or we could even get more specific and say British North America. Um, But if you think about some of the the big and tragic transformations in human history, um, dispossession of indigenous people, trafficking in African slaves, And then the movement, usually of European people, and the British were really um, the masters of this, and I use that word advisedly, of colonial um, settler projects, settler colonialism, where groups of people come from a home country and plop themselves down um, somewhere already inhabited, and then with that kind of charter population, um, don't just do what other groups of Europeans did, which sometimes would be to stay and trade, create outposts, have missions, military forts, but actually commit themselves to a project of increasing their population and taking over um, in line with dispossession. And of course, in early British North America, all three projects were linked. Um, dispossession of native peoples, the colonial settler project, and the traffic in Africans. And the reason I bring this up as an example of kind of the importance of gender as a history maker and maker of historical change in its own right is that all of these major transformations ruptured existing systems of belonging, um, kinship, family, marriage, parents and children, and led to creations of new formations, new, in some cases, very much continuous with old expectations and ideas about what family was and what connection and belonging should mean. But in some cases, kind of forced to make adaptations and changes in actual behaviors. But none of this is possible um, if there aren't little people produced you know, if there aren't actually at some point, some kind of family or household formation that's producing children. And British colonists were super good at that. Um, 
And so for me, that's kind of, you know, my bedrock understanding of how everything else, um, it becomes kind of icing on the cake. <laughs> because if you don't have these conditions and this way of understanding big movements and ruptures and populations and connections among people, then all the other stuff actually can't happen. Um, right. I mean, it just doesn't happen without that. Yeah. I've, I've often felt that um, understanding that domesticity, the household, the family, and, and women being the producers of, of people and the, the people raising people. Um, when people talk about economy, politics, and law, and do histories embedded in that, I, I find them interesting. But ultimately, they never seem to really explain to me how things happen. And I feel like it, it, we, unless we narrow down in our focus, and if you narrow down in the focus, then gender becomes essential and how that's constructed and divides labor or, or rights or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, just as an archaeologist, it's sometimes harder even to get at that. But um, I very much like taking that approach um, to try to, to get down to that level. Um, and I, I find that economists are essentially always wrong. So I don't really think their models of how <laughs> things work make any sense. I think we do have to, and nothing explains why people make the choices that they do. They're not rational actors. They're not this or that. They're individuals and they're historically situated, culturally contextualized. So to me, this is kind of the only way and we're missing the boat if we don't do it. But I feel still that it's a difficult path and it's hard to make very clean thesis statements when you are doing yeah. this kind of work. It's also hard to tell a story. Right, and so right. And that is hard. History compelling is that you're telling a really good story. And actually this came up, um, you know, in some of the recent debates coming out of the White House about whether in fact the government should be pushing a kind of patriotic history mm, yes. that tells stories about the essential goodness of the United States versus, and the the um, project he chose to pick on was the 1619 project, um, you know, a, a critical view of the past. And um, it's so when I say a good story, I just want to be clear that I don't necessarily mean a happy story. Um, but that it has some of the features of a narrative that carries our, holds our attention, grabs our attention and carries it. And one of the problems with the way I think about historical change is if you don't have the central drop of the boulder or pebble to have the, the circles radiate out in the pond and you have lots of um, either independent dropping of boulders or pebbles creating those circles or you have things in the pond that bounce bubbling up yeah yeah, yeah or yeah. that bounce those <laughs> waves back right. i never thought i'd be so deep into a physics analogy yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not linear it's just not linear and so many stories that grab us and that become kind of mythic are linear mm -hmm. in you know, a certain way a beginning a middle and an end and it's so it is, um, you know, it gets very deep into our own expectations for what is a gripping story and um, how and do we wanting, know a story done. Right. And wanting to understand causality, which right. I think people really do. Mm -hmm. gives them a sense of control over 
their lives and potentially the future. And and I think being a humanist, sort of, I, I don't ever see that. It's messy. That's never yeah. what we're going to get. So I, I often start my classes telling students that and telling them they should not stay in my class if they want an easy answer <laughs> to anything. Yeah, because stories often have easy answers at the end, and there's not always that easy answer within history to give. So that is, that. I, I think that's interesting that you bring up that idea of story. Um, but your titles are very good. <laughs> And they they are very intriguing. And so I just want to dive in to your first book, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs. What a title. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, part of this is because you trace uh, changes in the meaning of the terms nasty and wench from Britain in the early 1600s to the American colonies in the 17th in 18th centuries. Wenches began as a term applied to English women who were not marriage material and eventually became associated, this term eventually became associated with black women and other women of color. And and I just wanted you to clarify if that was um, women who are married or not married, but let me finish my question. Um, So there's this shift, which is emblematic of broader shifts in historical understandings of gender and race in colonies such as Virginia. These shifts were very, very significant because they allowed the cultural practice of chattel slavery to take hold and eventually become codified in law. You talk about this, but my question is, can you talk a little bit about how cultural constructions of race and gender changed or was invented to make slavery possible and to make it seem natural? when it's so unnatural, and how this required some mental gymnastics on the part of the colonists about kinship and paternity and the concepts of the family. Yes, well, great, um, great set of questions. And so I'll just start by saying that that term wench gets used um, uh, kind of across the board for women of color beginning in the 18th century. Okay. Um, and in it, part of the term as it's used in that context, um, it, there's a built-in disregard for marital status of women of color. Oh, okay. okay. So it's almost, yeah. I mean, a, a much older woman might not be called a wench, but any woman understood to be kind of, um reproductively viable or yeah or potentially um i guess you know sort of somewhere in the the kind of age range of somebody who might be a sexual Mm -hmm. victim Mm -hmm. um uh or be seen as sexually available in some way so the sort of and again in a system of slavery where slave marriage isn't really recognized it's not that that's affording any particular respect to a woman of color anyway Mm. um so i guess the, uh, the the one other thing i'd say before i kind of try to answer this is um and this is um from work i've actually done more recently with a a fellow historian um named jennifer spear who's at simon fraser university um, and what one of the things we decided to do, we started on this article, which we actually haven't quite <laughs> finished, but we were trying to understand 
this very weird provision in Virginia, um, which comes in 1662 to make slavery um, inheritable um, for the child of an enslaved woman um, and makes the father's status white, free and black, enslaved, makes it irrelevant to the child's status. This, this um, is a, something I never learned about, Kathy, so I'm glad you're explaining it. It's fascinating and incredibly disturbing. It, yeah, it is. Uh, Virginia doesn't invent this. So this is sort of, I'm just trying to clarify, you know, so much I think is not intentional. It's, it's not that people necessarily have a clear template and a clear guide for how to, uh, in fact, I think there's a recent book um, with the title, How to Make a Slave, um, that they, they really, they're not necessarily um, thinking with great foresight about all the implications of everything they're doing. Um, the one thing that I think I have learned since I wrote my first book um, is that all around the Atlantic where Africans are being trafficked, people are assuming that a baby that comes out of the body of an enslaved woman is a slave. They're just assuming it. There's no law defining it. But like, you know, think about the ships in the Middle Passage taking women across the Atlantic. If a woman has a baby, nobody's saying, okay, stop everybody. Um, is this child free or enslaved? We better figure it out. They're just mm-hmm. they're assuming. And part of this, the set of assumptions, I think, become powerful because of the currency of trade, you know, the commerce and the commodification of the bodies of enslaved people. But Virginia is the place of all these colonial spaces that puts it into law. Um, And, you know, it even does this, Barbados actually has the first real kind of clear and comprehensive slave code, but Barbados in 1661, so a year earlier, but Barbados does not include this provision. It's really unique to Virginia. Okay, so then the question is, well, why? And I don't know that I've got really good answers on that. I mean, I found, I found this one uh, slave owning guy in Virginia who brings a petition to the governor right before this passage of the 1662 um, law. And he's got an enslaved woman with, well, we don't know. She seems to be an enslaved woman. She's had a child. And there's a question about who owns the child. Um, And that's the kind of proximate, you know, if we were going to look very, very locally for an answer, that might be a way to to look at it. Um, But another way to look at it, uh, um, a fellow historian has been doing work just looking at the interest of the King of England in a kind of aristocratic I guess, um, feudal sort of view of the world, of course, with himself at the very top, where slavery has a strong place, that the kind of skewed hierarchy that slavery is part of, you know, where some people are practically powerless, um, is very much part of, this would be um, the Stuart King, Charles II, very much part of he's the Restoration King who comes after the English Civil War. Um, and he's actually one of the ones who's behind the Royal African Company. Um, So he's, you know, 
he's definitely got a lot of interest in slavery. And so that's sort of an interesting question. Like if you were not going to be looking locally for like, why does this happen in Virginia? But you were going to look more um, empire wide at what some of the big influences are, then the king's own interest in this would um, be another another factor. So all I guess all I'm trying to say with this is it's not always uh, it's not always clear when individual households, even individual regions, start um, treating human beings like property exactly what all the consequences are going to be. But it does seem that one of the processes that happens is that any privilege of being human is going to be at risk for those people deemed human property. So if you're the master and you've purchased somebody, you you definitely don't want that person having human relationships that in any way would compromise your mastery. So if you're the enslaver of a woman, you don't want her to have a husband she has to obey. Right. Right. I mean, and, and you don't want her, you don't actually want her to be able to have her own people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. right? Family. Her relations. Um, right. Well, right. and that family could stay together and that you yeah. couldn't sell them off independently. So for me, when I, I read this part in your book, the two things stood out to me. Um, as just being mind-bending. One was was that um, this is basically a patriarchal society of these Virginian colonists and things are inherited. Your whole identity comes from your paternal line. And this is a shift to looking at inheriting through the mother's line and the father being irrelevant. So there's a bit of mental gymnastics, restructuring family kinship, what that meant, based along some line that was if you were a slave or not, and really what that seemed to come down to is if you were of African descent, if you were black or not. And the other thing which it's linked to and tied to and is more disturbing to me was that you were talking about the the taxes that Virginia um, planters had to pay um, on tobacco, and they had to be they were taxed on the amount of slaves that they had. They were not taxed on the indentured servants who basically fulfilled um, their uh, time. And then if it was a female English indentured servant and she got pregnant, um, then she could just take that time off while she's lying in or having the baby and then extend the time so that the master was able to get all his economic. But that was not the case with a slave who's a slave for life. So if a slave woman became pregnant, he couldn't get that time back. So it almost seemed like they were arguing with the the government, the the crown, whatever, that, you know, this is unfair, these taxes, and almost the child becomes compensation property for that time lost. And, and that commodification of that human relationship to me was just so startling. And it seemed so grossly economic at that time. And, and like you said, I don't know how to what degree they were fully aware, but it seemed at some point it was an economic motivation to put that into law. Yes. And the only thing I would, that's a great, (laughs) this great, great summary. Um, But the only thing I would add to that is, uh, so white indentured servant men are taxed because, so basically people are being categorized by 
um, their value in tobacco fields as agricultural laborers. Okay. And so this is where the question mark comes up around women, um, because in England, women were not most agriculture in England is done by the plow and plow is man's work. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. It's not completely, but you know, if you were to make a really gross generalization about forms of agriculture and agricultural technology in societies where there are plows and plow animals and the crops that are associated with that, generally that's men's work and it's considered highly skilled. Um, and if you're looking at something like tobacco production, but actually it's true for rice, um, it's true for kind of the market gardening that a lot of um, women engaged in English villages. Um, it's true of a lot of Native American um, women's agricultural work as well. It's true of a lot of African women's agricultural work, and that's use of a hoe, H-O-E. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have to say to my students, agriculture. We're digging up hoes sometimes when we're in the field, so <laughs> be right. careful. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and so the the bigger rubric is, um, you know, sort of productivity as an agricultural labor laborer in a tobacco field or a cornfield. So a really old guy isn't going to be. There's no tax paid on him because he's or, or an injured guy. No tax paid on him. A little guy, you know, somebody who's too little to do the work. No tax paid. Um, Women, there's kind of a question for a while, you know, well, some women are working in the fields, you know, should they be taxable? Well, the colony really doesn't want to have a reputation for shipping English women across the ocean and putting them to work in tobacco fields, right? It, that's it, not yeah. going to encourage more women to come. So that's, right. <laughs> I see. So there's that. So this really brings the whole gender race thing smack together. And it and it it's that that nexus that I feel like it's it's the economy of that that really brings the race the gender and it makes that slavery possible that in, the inherited chattel slavery and and codified in law. Yeah. Oof. Uh, yeah, because in fact, um, so one of the interesting things, just to kind of jump ahead a little bit, if you were to look at the Americas more broadly and all the places around the Atlantic where uh, Africans are trafficked as slaves. The other interesting thing about Virginia, besides it has this early law that makes slavery inheritable through the mother, is that Virginia and Maryland together are among the first places in the entire Atlantic world where enslaved people who have been brought to do agricultural work on plantations begin to reproduce their own population. Um, it's a, uh, and to increase that population um, through birth rather than through continued trafficking of Africans. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and I'll explain this. This is a term that's been used by scholars. It's absolutely offensive. And I, urge my students, remind them, nag them, and they fall back into saying it, not because they're, uh, you know, 
being disrespectful. It's all over the literature, but you'll understand as soon as I say it what the problem is. The terms, and actually, I think it's demographers who probably invented this term. Oh, the darn demographers. Um, <laughs> They're right there with the economists. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, and the term is natural increase. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. what I, you know, lesson number one for everybody I ever have in my class in the world of human beings, there is no such thing as no. natural increase. No. We do not know of any humans anywhere ever who were just producing children willy-nilly. I guess I shouldn't say that word, willy. Um, <laughs> no, ru no rules. Right. Yeah. No words, no culture. Right. No. There's always a huge structure mm -hmm. around right. having what's appropriate, raising children, what you're allowed to do, who has access to who, what's licit, what's illicit sex even, regardless of. Yeah, right. gotcha. Okay. And certainly for enslaved people, for goodness sake, natural increase. The other part of the problem with that term is that it's the term that farmers use for livestock. Mm, yeah. So people... Do not use that. Yeah. Do not use that term. Don't talk about a family where there are ten kids as natural increase, right? I mean, so um, we're just going to take one second here to take a station break. Okay. You're, you're listening to the Dirt on the Past with co-host Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria. We're speaking today with Kathleen Brown about her research into the ways in which historical constructions of gender and race cleanliness and the human body in early America were foundational to the institutions of both slavery and human rights. So I'm going to um, turn it back to Crystal and we're going to um, just ask a few little small questions about this book before we move on to your second book. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about that term wench. Um, and that idea of nasty wenches. So I wanted to turn to the term nasty. And um, I watched a little bit you did, uh, a little uh, YouTube video di you did on the term nasty. And you talk about kind of bringing it more into the present. And um, the song Nasty by Janet Jackson. And, of course, that was one of my favorite songs when I was in middle school all those years ago. <laughs> And so I had to go. I went on today and listened to the song again, and it's really held up. It's a really good song. I know. I wanted to. I wanted to play a little clip of it here, but you know, that, it's like an earworm too. It, it is. Yeah, it it is. It is. But we we can't do that. But um, but anyway, we've heard this term nasty quite a bit, especially in the last four years, and also the phrase nasty woman are nasty women. And so I'm interested in your understanding of how this word has changed since the early 19th century. Right. Um, so um, I think the kind of broader sketch I give of it is that it really went from a much older set of meetings about um, an unwholesomeness or an unhealthiness. And so it got used to describe food and the weather with the idea that the weather could kill you, you know, back in the old days, right? The climate could be nasty in a way that would be really bad for you and your health. Um, but it also carried meanings about specific people, um, the unpleasantness, the unwholesomeness um, of their persons, of their 
sexual morality, um, of their habits. Um, and the reclamation that I see and that I know about really is a, a much more recent phenomenon going back a few decades where um, nasty really becomes, there's a kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nasty um, set of meanings, which means naughty, mm-hmm. um, which actually means like, oh, nasty, kind of powerful and maybe mm-hmm. kind of sexy and um, and a, a kind of an admiration for a, a form of empowerment. And part of the reclamation of the world word is a rejection um, that we might think of with the phrase that actually another historian has made um, into common currency, um, well-behaved w- women seldom make history. Yes. And so then the, the, the logical kind of conclusion of that is, well, maybe nasty women could make history. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe those are the history makers and it, we ought to, you know, um, leave behind some of those judgments about appearance and person and um, sexual uh, reputations for sexual naughtiness. And we ought to actually see those as forms of power. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, words matter. And I Mm. think that, you know, we've talked about that a few times. And so that's why we wanted to dive into some of these words and talk a little bit about them. um, Because they do. Words and phrases matter. Um, and are important to understand as you're doing history and interpreting history that you use the right words and that you understand those words that you're interpreting in their historical in their historical context. context. Interesting that the, the president uses them again to try to hearken back to an earlier meaning, right? <laughs> and right. Ignore the reclaimed meaning. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think those older meanings, you know, I don't actually think they completely go away. Right. Uh, I actually do think. And I I can't really explain it, but I do think that even with reclamations somewhere, um, those older meetings are still available. Um, So, uh, you know, and this is has to do with other work that um, I'm interested in as a historian. But I do think, for example, in a moment of a crisis or a panic, sometimes older ideas bubble up. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, But I think sometimes the meanings attached to older meanings attached to words that might not even be in current use anymore, also are available to us, not always in good ways. Right. Uh, Well, we all we um, all knew what it meant when it was used in that context um, by candidate Trump or President Trump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what about the term wench, Kathy? Do we know anything about that? And did it change over time the meaning? I mean, my only interaction really with that word crystal and i were talking was like when i wanted to buy a somewhat sexy halloween costume back when i was younger and had the figure for it i could be this naughty wench you know but um like i i don't know that it it has the same connotations that it did it seems to have fallen more out of favor maybe than nasty i don't know what are your thoughts on that so again, um, being the historian geek that I am, I'm much more up on the uh, no longer current meetings of it. But what I can tell you is that if you if you were to do word searches, you find it used um, not always in a really pejorative way um, for English women. Um, like it could be used, for example, to talk about a kind of an uncultivated 
um, English woman from the country um, who is in service or is unmarried or is young. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily um, be a pejorative term. I mean, this would be back in the 17th and into the 18th century in England. In North America, though, it does change and it does move. So one of the interesting things I did is I went back to the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's interesting because the Oxford English Dictionary lists the first racialized meaning of wench as coming in the North American context, actually. And that is where the term develops. Um, you know, you can actually just sort of see the path split and you wouldn't see very many white women referred to by wench anymore. And you see the term almost exclusively used for women of color beginning in the 18th century. I don't, I don't really know. I can tell you what I suspect. Um, I suspect that there's a kind of gentrification that's going on in the 19th century where it's just not polite necessarily to call anybody a wench not white people in front of other white people using the term anyway, but what people are calling uh, white people, especially calling black people in non-public places. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think I know the answer and I suspect that it's still being used that way. And I think the reclamation of wench, um, you know, again, in more recent decades, sort of, um, harkens to a sort of almost a playfulness of turning it into a term of endearment or of a kind of playful insult. Right, like um, you saucy wench, like a kind of a, yeah, very playful, kind of fun, naughty, but not gross. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. right. So it's sort of Shakespearean mm -hmm. um, woman, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm thinking of, you know how, huh, I'm really dating myself now, but for a while, these kind of medieval banquet style places were very yes, in vogue yeah, and yes. you would pay a whole bunch of money to really eat not very good food and to kind of experience the medieval yes. chaos of a banquet and there'd be saucy serving wenches and, yes. you know, um, so I think there's that. And the only thing I would say is that there's another word, which I won't say, um, my kids use it all the time. I know, I know this younger generation uses it all the time. It begins with a B. Um, it's not unlike, you know, sometimes right. substitute for nasty. Um, but it it has in for kids talking to other kids almost become a term of endearment, right? Or right. talking oh, about okay. their people, or but also sometimes very frankly addressing, you know, in a playful way a power. Yes. Inequality. Okay. I'm not yes. Yep. 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 Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Kind of like hoe, but not the hoe we were talking about earlier. But right. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to foul bodies. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk about foul bodies. Again, another interesting title. So in foul bodies, the book, you put the body at the center of this history of early America, and you present a changing cultural history of the body, which is very much an anthropological approach to understanding that human ideas about bodily presentation, like concepts of cleanliness and filth and beauty, health and sexuality, are all culturally embedded part of culture rather than objective or natural. Yeah, I um, for me, it was so fun to see that Mary Douglas was in this book in part and that, you know, discussions of um, 
bodily odors. You know, these are all things we think of as being so hardwired in that they're natural. I love telling my students about these experiments with um, uh, psych psychologists, but they've done it cross-culturally where they put a French bunch of babies in front of these things that smell different than some of them are feces, some of them are roses, and the babies have no trouble with the smell of feces. So it's, it's a learned thing that certain yeah. things smell yeah. bad. Bodies yep. smell bad. Um, and in your book, too, early on, you also talk about what it must have been like uh, for Native Americans who had very different ideas about cleanliness, how to care for the body, um, how to uh, have a body maintained in a way that was more hairless and uh, um that bathing in water was something that might still be done or practicing sweating as an aspect of health and the body. All of those things were um, a, a cultural conceptions to do with the body that were not being practiced among the Europeans that came. So um, so I didn't know if you wanted to just talk a little bit about how you got onto that idea to begin with. Um, yes, that's a good question. Um, so I think one part of what got me into the project was that I was pretty interested in the fact that, you know, again, making really gross and broad generalizations over big, you know, vast time and space. Um, people often think about the practices of their own in-groups as kind of good and pure and familiar and clean and not threatening and they're much more suspicious, often have much higher standards for what people outside their group do. And I say higher standards, um, high, they have uh, higher expectations of what people outside their group must do in order for them to feel safe around those people. And so that's yes. where you often get outsiders referred to as, you know, dirty. The kind of assumption is they're doing things differently. Um, I don't know if that's safe or healthy or clean, or it seems or just being dangerous, scary. It yeah. seems something that somehow is almost natural to your own group done differently is not just scary, but might also seem kind of threatening or dangerous. So what I was fascinated by was that how difficult a project that would have been and I think really was for Europeans when encountering indigenous people. Um, in other words, that they couldn't easily just look to this group of people who were outside their own group and go, oh, dirty. Right. You know what I mean? Like, um, and what's and, dirty? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Let's have a seminar on it. Um, <laughs> but, so what you do sometimes get. Um, comments that I think are also really pretty culturally specific. I mean, you do get Europeans who will say that being inside of um, Native people's houses, whatever they're, you know, the construction of the houses, that they are really troubled by the smoke or they're really troubled by the smell of bear grease. Um, mm. And, you know, but it's very interesting. They're not saying, oh, and then there's this odor coming from their armpits or, you know, or their feet or <laughs> they're, they're not they're not body odors in the sense that a kind of, um, you know, advanced capitalist society that's got a product for every kind of odor right. that the body could produce. They're not, they're not taking in the smells that way, but they're also 
you know, initially in the, and again, it, it changes because you will get Americans at a much later period in history referring to um, Native peoples as dirty, but it's often in the context of tribal remnants, people who have, you know, had to find other groups of people and reform themselves, people who've been moved from After we've had so much again and again. right displacement and depopulation and and all those atrocities, mm-hmm. yeah, it it seems so interesting to me that yeah that initial connection um, or meeting that that uncleanliness or or odors are not a major issue, and you even have some people like I mean Jefferson really loved Native Americans and and found them much preferable to. Uh, slaves, African Americans, who even though he had a relationship with one and children with one, so um, so clearly a lot of complications there. But let me get to my question. So you historicize cleanliness in the book Foul Bodies as a cultural practice, um, as a way that people within society order themselves and kind of order society then also more broadly. So they're presenting themselves to the outside and making judgments on each other. Cleanliness seems to have explicit gender and racial boundaries in early America, um, making it a visible and odoriferous marker of class, um, again, tying into gender, race, and class, making those intertwined. But I want to get specifically to my question in the book. You start off in Britain and speak to the role of water in cleanliness or really the movement away from immersing the body in water as a method to clean the body, especially among the British who I think you've mentioned in other places seem to be particularly um, disinclined to bathe and other Europeans even notice it. So can you talk a bit about why uh, the British stopped using water to clean their bodies and what they used instead of bathing to become clean or signal cleanliness? Right. So, um, so part of this has to do with the fact that how people imagine the workings of their bodies also is a historical, you know, dynamic of its own. Um, and so I think, and I, this is not my work alone in any way, I'm really relying on a number of other scholars, but um, somewhere around the time of you know, the plague years in Europe, um, lots of European cities out of fear, um, and I would say this is amplified, especially with the spread of syphilis throughout Europe after Columbus's men come back um, and syphilis spreads all over. And in fact, everybody calls syphilis um, by a moniker that reflects another European nation's complicity in it. And so uh, it's the mm-hmm. French disease. Right, the okay. French pox, yeah. <laughs> Italian disease if you're German. And anyway, um, basically what people do in response to this kind of um, moral panic is they close bathhouses, uh, public bathhouses. And, and for most urban people that would have been one of the ways that you you not just cleaned yourself but it was sort of a a center for body care of a lot of different kinds um you might get your hair trimmed there you might get the barber surgeon to put hot glass cups on your back 
if you were suffering from some ailment with the idea that that cupping um, could help draw out the poisons. Okay, so um, health and cleanliness kind of happening in the bathhouses. And a lot of other stuff, too. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yes, I can imagine. Clothing removed, <laughs> and, and both sexes are there? Is that yeah, separated? You know, it depends, and it's, as people became more worried and more fastidious, the um, compartmentalization of women's baths from men's baths, and then... Uh, in I think it was in Paris, actors would have a different day for going to the bathhouses than other people <laughs> were forced to go to the bathhouse on a different day. So you get a lot of uh, what had once been a kind of more comfortable space that featured young people, old people, men and women became more segregated. Mm, okay. um, I, I think out of a sense of safety and propriety and also out of fear. Um, but Ultimately, um, with the closing of the bathhouses, and uh, uh, again, the people at the time are thinking about the body um, as a kind of a bag of fluids that's sort of held together by this membrane that's very porous, the skin. And they do think a lot about whatever's on the skin potentially getting in and making you sick. So they don't have a lot of confidence in the skin as a protective membrane. Wow, interesting. Um, okay. And they worry about weakening the skin. And certainly hot water is understood mm. to weaken skin in ways that lets thing, things in. But even cold water, there are concerns about cold water. So people continue a practice they had already used in the bathhouses, which is friction. So basically, if you think about in the present day, people who use a loofah, or if you use a washcloth, right. um, or if you use anything that actually is about kind of exfoliating, but, but stimulating the surface of the skin, rubbing it, and through that action, cleansing the skin, people turn to that more exclusively as the only safe way to remove toxins from the skin. And, and the understanding was that if you really wanted to be clean, what you were doing was really changing your shirt regularly. And a shirt at the time would have been kind of an all-purpose undergarment. There was a men's version and a woman's version. They weren't that different. Um, and it would be something that would go under all the clothes that would be seen uh, by the outside world. And that would be the thing that you would change. And that would be the thing that would be washable. And that would have friction against the skin to kind of do that cleaning. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Be another barrier. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so interesting because Northern Europeans, we spent some time in Iceland and um, and Russians um, uh, that, that have been in Turkey with the Turkey. There seems to be places where culturally that persisted. And I don't, I don't, I, I can't even imagine that we can't digress into that history, but it, it, Definitely seems that there were different ways in which bathing may have fell out of favor and and things like that. But um, that's fascinating. But but the point being, um, Crystal, that they weren't bathing, which right. brings us to your question. Yeah. They, so so these these folks weren't bathing. They weren't bathing. They were using other methods. Um, well, and then you do get people who are kind of. Um, you know, they make a big deal about it. They write about it in their diaries. You do get people, certainly in the 18th century, who say, and I went into the bath. You know, like it is, the, it's momentous. Yeah. Um, so 
it's not a day it's not a daily routine of body care and for those who are engaging in it they're often doing it um motivated more by what they think might be a helpful and kind of invigorating uh event for the constitution of the body that might enable it to be stronger and fight off disease they're experimenting really um so one of the things you point out is that they switched to using linen in these garments that are white as a as a way to signal cleanliness and that this even which is so new to me in the sense that the the images that we see in paintings or, or woodcuts of, of people with these ruffly bits showing up around their neck or their sleeves those those were really an outgrowth of this idea of the the undergarment protecting you that's more washable than their outer garments which are leather or wool uh, they can they can be the thing that gets washed and clean but that showing it becomes important as a as a public sort of outward marker of cleanliness kind of a status marker even yeah i mean it's a sort of conspicuous consumption of fancy cloth because the people who are doing that those were often detachable um right it could be like a, a rough um you know if you think about the pictures of again shakespeare's time or elizabethans with kind of the big rough that goes all the way around but then other people had fancy jabos and collars and things and those were often detachable um and washable uh well so that's interesting yes i mean they would be especially if they were made out of linen they're delicate so they have to be washed carefully these are not things that are just getting wrung through um a mangle right in your laundry equipment they're being treated very carefully um but yeah, the the idea was that, uh, and actually, somebody who had less um, wealth would not probably be purchasing linen, and certainly not showing it off to the same degree that had as fine a weave. Uh, might not even be bleached linen, so it mm-hmm. might not even be white in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could really mark your your status by being able to show very very clean, very white, very finely woven linen. So this is one of these ways in which body care changed and it, and it becomes encapsulated in this very expensive fabric. And then that leads us to the point about who is um, laundering all of that, what must be disgusting <laughs> linen because it's against <laughs> these unwashed bodies. Yeah. So the intimacy of laundering the things that are against people's skin. Oh my word. It's really hard to imagine. So, um, so talk a little. You talk a little bit in your book, and maybe just share with our listeners a little bit about the implications of understanding that shift from bathing to using linen. Of course, there's economic transport things involved, but in terms of the day-to-day labor and the impact on um, categories of people in the colonies. Yeah, I mean, I actually. Um began to think about it as a a kind of a major building block sort of structuring household relationships and and expectations social expectations for how people needed to prepare themselves to be able to appear in public in a um a refined way or in a decent way and when you start to think about the connection between public appearance and decency 
um, and all the work that goes into it um, than something like um, the remark of a 17th century Native American man um, who was being approached by a 17th century English guy in New England, um, and they were talking about English style clothing. And the Native American guy was like, mm, actually, our, our women are not so keen on washing all this stuff. Like, yeah. if you if we started wearing those shirts that you English guys are wearing, they wouldn't stay nice for very long because our women are not really planning to do all that laundry. <laughs> They're saying, I don't think so. <laughs> But understanding that what might seem um, like a kind of prestige garment, and for a lot of Native Americans, um, European style clothing was, it was, it wasn't that they looked at it and they were amazed by the technology or thought it was so wonderful, but like anything that's not part of your ordinary set of choices, it had an exoticism to it, it had a kind of prestige value. Um, it symbolized that you also had connections to Europeans in ways that might enhance your status. Um, but they were quite clear that as a long-term proposition, it didn't, you know, it didn't look like all the things you would need to maintain those clothes, those linen shirts that looked like it would be potentially disruptive of a lot of other relationships. And that was partly what made me start thinking about it, not just as this kind of frivolous or incidental thing, but actually a sort of major structuring part of household labor and, you know, defying the ways scholars sometimes think about the public and the private as so separate even though they say they don't believe that anymore, it really seemed to connect those two. Yes, because it's this public presentation of self that so depends on that domestic private labor. Um, I loved your point that, was it Herman Melville, like didn't, didn't really follow the rules about public presentation and he was stinky. There was a couple of people who were gross yeah. <laughs> in public anyway, but that most people to follow this, it, it, yeah. major implications for yeah. organization of of these economies. And I think any economy that we talk about rests on these domestic economies, whether people are paid or not for mm -hmm. their labor and laundry becoming such a, um, a massive effort. Um, I can only imagine what also it must've felt like to have somebody doing your laundry. Um, when my husband and I, who's he's South African, when we would go back to South Africa and, um, of course, apartheid has ended, but there's still a lot of labor labor done in the domestic context by um, Native African, Black African women. And um, as an American, I found it so uncomfortable to have people in your private space seeing how messy I was as a mother trying to keep my children clean, how bad I was at it. <laughs> so just knowing those intimacies, um, wow. I mean, it, it, is, it is very intimate. I'm actually washing other people's clothes is re, is actually kind of intimate because those clothes were on their bodies. Um, so that's the other part of it that's also sort of fascinating is that people do feel relieved of the chore if they pay somebody or can coerce someone else to clean their laundry, clean their laundry. But the fact is, um, it really does 
leave you with very few secrets. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the, the stories you too about how men would just absolutely not do laundry. So if they were single men or if they were in the army, they would just get disgusting. They would not do their laundry. And most of the times the military hired laundresses. They were, they were paid by the soldiers as well as getting rations. It was quite a good job despite the connotations of perhaps being a wench or whatever, but you, it was seemed essential um, to, to care for, but men would never do it. So Um, gender. Well, I think, I mean, I think some of the issues were compounded by the fact that if you're going to do your laundry, you got to have some other clothes to put on, Mm -hmm. you know? And so if you are really limited in your clothing rations, um, you know, what's been issued to you as your kit, um, then that also becomes kind of problematic. You know, what are you going to do in the winter when you need to wash your stuff? Um, And then do you have the capacity, if you don't even have the capacity to feed yourself or provide medical care for sick people, you know, is there, has soap been issued? You know, are you somewhere where you can actually heat water? So I think there's all those things that go into it. But I also think that, you know, a lot of, the men who suffered with lice and skin irritations and clothes that were rotting on their bodies, um, you know, didn't even necessarily have the expertise to have problem solved another way to do it. Yeah. So, you know, as we're going to continue to talk about some smells, (laughs) um, you know, it reminded me when we were talking about this that I visited Colonial um, Williamsburg a few years ago, and yeah. the tour guide was talking about all the smells that were lingering around in Colonial Williamsburg, including uh, open sewage, that of both humans and animals, the smells from the tanneries, um, butchers, the tallow workers, you know, and so then you add in that the stench of people not bathing and, and holy cow, <laughs> it would have been an assault to our modern day senses. Um, so what do people do? And you talk a little bit about this in your book, and I thought it was so fascinating. What do people do to cover up these smells? And, and did they think they were as pl- problematic, I guess, as we think of smells today? So what is our, you know, how has our cultural understanding of smells changed over time? So um, people in the past thought that some, well, first of all, they thought of smells really as kind of live agents, um, often in the case of really unwholesome smells like miasmas um, uh, that could potentially make you sick, right, of, of mm-hmm. disease. Um, and so it wasn't so much, you know, some of the remedies, for example, if you feared that there was an unwholesome smell in your house that might make people sick, it wasn't so much that you were trying to do like those little um Glade plugins, yes, like, <laughs> um, where you're you're actively covering it up, but really they thought in terms of the competing smell, the wholesome smell. So maybe it would be taking a pan of vinegar and and cooking it so that the vinegar smell would go through the house, or using some kind of incense. Um, that the the smells that you put into the air would actually push the unwholesome smells out. So it wasn't like it was just going to cover it, but it was actively going to combat it. 
So kind of purify um, it so yeah. it wouldn't make you sick somehow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So you also, in your book, Foul Bodies, address the concerns of cleanliness in relation to health, social concerns about contagion, and prevention of disease. With the COVID pandemic that we are currently in the midst of, we have had to rethink our current practices of cleanliness with hand washing, uh, sanitizing surfaces, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And so with the culmination of the pandemic and this last election cycle, we have seen how ideas of cleanliness, contagion, and health have become politicized by party. But perhaps you might also say along lines of class, gender, and ethnicity as well. So there's been a lot of this politicking that's been has this kind of politicking um, that we see today, has this happened in the past? And I'm curious about that, if you've seen that, kind of what's happening today. Has that happened historically as well? So let's see. Um, Yes, I found this is a really interesting question. Um, And I guess the way um, I wanted to think about it was um, the process, if we think back to the nasty wenches we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, the process by which, and I think I really didn't answer this question um, full on when you, when you first raise it, but the process by which white women end up in a kind of elevated position of respect and refinement given that let's say everybody had the potential to be a wench of some kind to start with. And that term wench gets racialized, applied mainly to women of color and acquires all kinds of really unsavory, unpleasant, you know, insulting meanings. Um, And that's not just happening um, unrelated to some other processes. And one would be the kind of refinement of, white maternal bodies, especially middle-class bodies. Um, and so I think one part of what you see, and I'm, I'm kind of working my way around to this, is you know what we call care work or responsibility for care work in the present day. I kind of talked about it more in the 19th century as body work, but that the mother acquired, not only does the kind of white middle-class mother rise out of this much older formulation of being the lusty daughter of Eve, as in, you know, responsible for humankind's fall from paradise. Mm -hmm. Um, But also just of being in a female body that was generally understood to be highly imperfect, you know, way back in the day, Mm -hmm. to a person whose bodily refinement is somehow carrying some kind of authority over the bodies in her care. So, you know, admittedly, I was drawing, it was a pretty crude kind of through line I was drawing, but the person who says, wash your hands before supper. Right. Um, right. When you sneeze, be sure you put your, you know, arm over your face. Um, do you need a Kleenex? Uh, you know, right. uh, that, that person, that voice, that kind of um, almost monitoring of bodies within a household Um that person can't be themselves understood to be slovenly and the carrier of disease. Right. Right. And so that person's body has to kind of undergo some kind of redemption 
and refinement before they're in that position. And so I think in the present day, we sort of have the historical legacy of a lot of a lot of occupations that at one point were understood as women's work. And even though household roles have changed so much, a lot of the kind of legacy of women's role in households puts them in positions of responsibility for finding out what the rules are, enforcing the rules, you know, making or purchasing masks, nagging kids to wear the masks, um, finding about the COVID rates in the, you know, the county. I mean, just sort of that kind of, it's a, it's a form of care work. Um, I, I'm on a text with about 10 other mothers and, and every day it's, it's this huge stream of information about COVID and, and dealing with those issues. So yeah, it's still very much in that, right. that gendered sphere. Yeah. Of care. So it's, it's not so much like I'm not, I, I mean, I certainly understood um, the effort to politicize masks as something that only um, a less than manly man, right, would right. Right. bother with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's something about if we were to look at care work occupations, care work in households, you know, dom- private domestic family care work, there is something about um, women's presence and a lot of that, that sort of feminizes compliance with the rules. And it, this question was so fascinating for me. So I just wanted to um, just mention a couple other things. Um, if you think about the kind of, it's not always gendered, but there are these kind of struggles in American culture, lots of other cultures too, about a kind of freedom of the body or personal freedom Mask wearing is one of them, but think about helmets for motorcycles, um, seatbelts. Seatbelts, exactly, yeah. Vaccinations of children, that was actually fascinating because the history of that, if you look way back, the politics of individual freedom is really a bit different than it is now. Um, Gun ownership, um, even you know, your right to smoke cigarettes, um, if you want, right? I mean, there's so many issues around that are very connected to the body. Even birth uh, oh, for women. I, I don't know if I mentioned safe sex. Oh, right. right. Yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was going to say the legality of midwifery, of having a home birth. of some. That's another huge yeah. state by state. It's, it's yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you, you know, I mean, it would be really interesting to sit down and kind of look at the last 40 or 50 years of the way some of these sort of fights about personal freedoms, where they've popped up and who seems to have most stake in those fights. Um, Like, I'm not even sure at this moment, are most people who object to wearing masks male or female and um, you know, we have a kind of a sense that it's a red state, blue state issue, but is it really? I mean, I, I don't, I, I'd be curious to know more. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. right. I definitely felt that Trump's um, attacks on Biden for wearing a mask seemed like attempts to kind of feminize him in a way, though, and make him seem yes. less manly or something. Um, um, yes. 
And so well, it made me think of, of these other issues related to, to cleanliness and contagion. Yeah. So well, you have a sense that John Wayne wouldn't have worn a mask, right? right? <laughs> so well put. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. That sums it up. So we'll just take a quick station break here. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and myself, Crystal Alegria. We are speaking today with Dr. Kathleen Brown about her research into the ways in which historical constructions of gender and race, cleanliness, and the human body in early America were foundational to the institutions of both slavery and human rights. Okay, so Kathy, your most recent project, your forthcoming book, Undoing Slavery, Abolition, and the Argument Over Humanity, sticks in some ways to this theme of the body, um, the body's capacity for labor, reproduction, and, and suffering. You talk about it at one point, um, as well as the theme of white patriarchy. Your book sees the abolitionist movement as really the first human rights campaign and one that had to rely on these uh, very distinct and normative gender categories of male and female, on all those things and expectations that were contained within them. And, and then the violation of that mother-child bond as a way to elicit sympathy and support. And yeah, you know, you sent us that first chapter, which is a draft, I guess, of, of your first chapter called Maternal Blood and Tears, another great title. And it was powerful, which begins with the story of Sojourner Truth, a black abolitionist exposing her breasts at a rally to prove she was a woman. Can you start off by telling us that story and why you decided to tell it in that first chapter? So it's um, it's actually from it's actually chapter six in the book. So mm, there's a okay. bit of water under the bridge before I get to to that story. But Sojourner Truth was this really amazing um, historical figure. Um, she was born into slavery. She ended up self emancipating um, in New York State when the state legislature. Um, followed up on a 1799 gradual abolition provision in 1827, which just decided um, that all people subject to that gradual abolition would at that moment be free. And the master who had kept her enslaved hadn't really moved very quickly to let her know and to emancipate her. So she self-emancipated. She ended up with a group of we would think of now as kind of pretty far out there um, religious radicals who were in a bit of a cult. And she was one of the only people of color um, in the group. And she kind of um, was very careful to not get involved in some of their shenanigans. And they got into some pretty wild shenanigans. And then she had a kind of a, a conversion experience and she changed her name from um, Isabella Bomfrey to Sojourner Truth and became an itinerant minister. Um, she was not literate, um, but she had amazing kind of Bible knowledge and, um, you know, what I think people at various times have called mother wit, um, your ability to just think quickly on your feet um, and be in the conversation, you know, be able to um, hold your own in a conversation. So 
she was one of a small number of people who had pretty equal commitments both to um, gender equality and racial equality. And she was an abolitionist, of course. And so she would hit the road and speak on behalf of rights, um, always from a religious perspective, um, because that was who she was. She was a minister. And in this particular case, um, she was in... Um, an abolitionist meeting that was being disrupted, as so many were, um, in this case, um, by a man who was a doctor. Um, and this is partly what interested me. And this is a very well-known instance, by the way. This is, um, you know, one of the kind of iconic moments in her career that lots of people have written about. I got it particularly interested in because he was a doctor and I was interested in how um, abolition was intertwined with the emergence of race science, racist science during the period that outlasted slavery in ways that kind of gave sanction to Jim Crow and oh, right. other forms of structural racism, which persist to this day. Right. In any case, this doctor who was a Democrat um, was, and the Democrats were not on the side of abolition, <laughs> This was uh, in the 1850s. He started heckling her and he raised a possibility in public that she was not really a woman, that she was a man masquerading as a woman. Now, as it turns out, this was not the first time an abolitionist who identified publicly as female was questioned about whether they were female. Sometimes, you know, it happened much less frequently to white women, but it did in fact happen uh, at least a couple times to white women who would stand up and hold forth in ways that people found very uncharacteristic of women in public. And so they would doubt when they heard a woman holding forth that that really could be a woman. That's amazing. Um, That's amazing to, to think about color, in this day and yeah. age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It happened to women of color more often. And um, Sojourner Truth was a tall woman. She had a deep voice. Um, she, you know, but she was famous. Um, and so she really, uh, he challenged her to show her breasts to some of the women in the audience. So she kind of decided to do him one better. And she actually unfastened her blouse and showed her breast to the whole audience. Um, and I was interested in that in part because it was a period in the United States when um, medical doctors were building their professional expertise um, by a kind of amassing collections of cases in which um, only their ability to examine a body and collect evidence about what was happening to that body, only that could serve as the basis for a really accurate medical judgment about the state of that body. So and they wanted to assert their yeah, authority over that, whether someone's man or woman, a diagnosis, whether a woman's pregnant, they needed ways to try to assert and take it away from a woman just telling you she's pregnant or she's a woman. 
um, so that this kind of, you know, um, positivist sort of objective evidence-based, you know, we, we have that term evidence-based medicine, and I want to be careful not to confuse it with the meaning <laughs> of that term in the present day, but it, it kind of the doctor's ability to be an impartial collector of evidence in ways that would enable him to make an objective determination of whether a woman was pregnant or not. Um, and it had its equivalent in courtrooms at the time where medical doctors might be called in to weigh in about race, um, about legitimacy yeah. of, uh, you know, in the case of a dispute over inheritance, whether somebody really could be the legitimate heir of someone else, um, whether somebody really was the father, or re uh, you know, it's usually about paternity. So doctors were also developing a kind of, you know, this, it's not that they hadn't had it before, but it was really becoming a much more formal part of medical training, the doctor's role as expert in courts of law. So Kathy, that reminds me of a book by Peggy Pascoe, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I read it in a graduate class I took, What Comes Naturally. And I think she starts from 1860 and goes on, but looks at a history of misinigation laws. And what stunned me was all the court cases, exactly like you're saying, where some medical expert was brought in to testify whether somebody was black or not or Mexican or not or whatever it is that they want and they would say the most outrageous things like well you can see that she's black look at her ankles or look at like there would be some weird yeah. witness testimony that was used and they try to bring in a doctor but people because of generations of intermarriage I mean they they had no idea what they were getting into and it seemed that those testimonies then formed the basis for a lot of the laws and changes to the laws. So it's this back and forth between real life practice and real life relationships between people and their offspring. And then what the state is trying to codify into law about sex and marriage and race and legitimacy. And again, that process of just inventing all of those things was so stunning. So I, I felt like that was a lot of um, some of the same issues interwoven into your discussion yeah. of this concept of human rights, which, you know, universal human rights, did that even exist, you know, at the right. time? Well, so certainly what you're describing in Pasco's book is the outgrowth of and the kind of full expression of you know, what people sometimes called scientific racist, racism or racist medicine, um, the elaboration by doctors committed to dissection as one of the main ways to get to know the body and teach anatomy, who become more and more convinced that there are parts of the body that are expressive of race. Um, so um, the best way I can explain it is um, like nobody's little pinky finger on its own, none of these doctors would believe in the 19th century would reveal race to anyone, but they began to make arguments that a woman's pelvis would reveal race because they were, they claimed, and I just want to be clear, this is their claim, right? This is not fact, um, that the pelvises of women of different races different differed in capacity, that leg bones 
that crania, especially. Especially the crania. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, But that there were a whole host of body parts that were especially racialized that expressed racial identity, that revealed it in ways that would enable a doctor who was an expert witness in a court of law to hold forth and make a proclamation about what someone's race was based on gathering evidence of these so-called highly raced parts of the body. And so-called mm-hmm. objective, though they were so based in a hierarchy of preferred, you know, traits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have uh, one last question, um, and we'll, we'll try to um, wind it down here. Um, I thought this was fascinating coming out of what we, we learned um, in your chapter from this forthcoming book, where you're making the case that um, the abolitionists focus on the inviolability of that mother-child bond, that bond that we see from that 1662 law in Virginia and other places where the, the child is property, essentially, of the master. And um, that that bond is uh, should be inviolable across racial boundaries and that that united people in this vision of a common humanity. That as well as other arguments about the rights over one's body, self-sovereignty, the product, also the rights of the product of one's labor. But the motherhood aspect in particular made it difficult later on to advocate for women's rights because that gendered concept of women, woman, had become so tied to the concepts of marriage and family in these arguments for abolition. Um, And it's within this patriarchal sociopolitical structure of the mid-19th century. So can you explain for our listeners why this mother-child bond argument by the abolitionists ended up sort of working against the movement for women's rights later? Let's see. I guess, um, I mean, it's easier in some ways to explain um, the other end of it, which is if you have a group of people for whom, um, you know, the vast majority of white people don't believe, uh, let's see if I can backtrack a little, explain this a little better. So even though we may have a much more critical view about what's natural to human beings and what's kind of culturally ingrained in us, imprinted on us, um, in the 19th century, it definitely was a liability for people of African descent to have most white people believe that they didn't, for example, suffer as much from pain when they were beaten or hurt, um, that they cried when their children were taken of the, from them, but they got over it really quickly. Mm. Um, that they could work for 10 hours in the stinking heat in a wet rice field in Carolina and not be as susceptible to malaria um, and on and on and on and on. And so it was a really important argument to make um, that anything that white people believed was natural and hardwired into white people as people was natural and hardwired into all people. Okay. The problem being <laughs> that those kinds of arguments about universal humanity also do 
build on, but also kind of really crystallize ideas about what's normal for human beings. And so um, that in and of itself can be an important tool for future organizing. There were lots of 19th century feminists and early 20th century feminists um, who argued for women's right to vote and um, women's right to run for office and women's right to be in all kinds of occupations and uh, advanced degree programs, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, and they often did so, I mean, up until about 1920, they often did so with the argument that the world needed the virtue of mothers. The world needed more maternalism, uh, more caring, more morality. Take that it out mothers, of the households, get it out there in public institutions. Yep. I mean, and so that was sort of the leading argument. I think what happens, and it, you know, this is a critique of kind of, well, liberal feminism or the idea that every person is just a little atomized individual as, as opposed to thinking about people in their connections to others, um, that if you reduce everybody to an individual with rights, um, being a mother can seem like a real drag, right? It can seem like it can really hold you back. Um, and so at a certain point, um, the argument about motherhood and about women being kind of um, naturally maternal and virtuous began to seem very old fashioned. And the generation that really rejected that were the flapper generation. Gotcha, mm -hmm. right? gotcha. Yeah. Cut your hair, get rid of yeah, those yeah. corseted curvy shapes, <laughs> get rid of those long dresses, <laughs> smoke, drink. Right. And interestingly for the very wealthy women, go to college. Right. Um, so weirdly this very tiny percentage of people in college in the 1920s is almost equal male and female. Mm, interesting. Um, but so you're, you're exactly right in what you're saying, but I guess all I would say is there is something about understanding belonging and a kind of right to belonging. Um, and I don't mean right to be a belonging, but right to actually have a sense of belonging, um, as something that I think we lost in the movement toward this much more individualized notion of rights. Um, and, you know, it's sort of poignant even to think about it at this moment in the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, because I think what mental health um, experts are saying is that actually um, it's really hard for people when they lose even sometimes very superficial senses of belonging, like the person you say hello to who's at your local convenience store who you know, or the, you know, the the guy you know at the gas station or, you know, sometimes it's those really incidental, um, perhaps even superficial kinds of social exchanges that help cement this bigger sense of belonging to a place or a neighborhood or a region, you know, never mind your sense of belonging with friends who you don't get to see because right. of the pandemic or mm -hmm. family. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was a complicated answer. I guess I was trying to answer it in a way that didn't make it sound so much like in progressing that we had everything figured out, because I don't think we do. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. It's been so good to visit with you today. And um, I learned so much in delving into your work and getting to better understand race and gender through your lens. So and especially through the lens of these three books. So um, such a different perspective and how you really speak to how everyday commonplace practices and ideas were foundational to these major changes in this country. So thank you so much. Yeah, and anyone interested in Kathy's books, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs, or Foul Bodies, can find them easily online. And Kathy, when might we expect to see Undoing Slavery out in bookstores? Well, I told my editor I was submitting the whole thing in December to him, and so hopefully by the middle of 2021. Oh, great. Congratulations in yes. advance. That's very exciting. Well, we've we've got to deliver now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know December's coming up. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Dr. Brown. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the Dirt Dirt on the Past. If you're enjoying the Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out the dirt on the past.